The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. On Sunday morning, we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew together from the very first verse to the last verse, but we're taking a three-week break to talk about the DNA of Emmanuel Baptist Church, the theological vision underneath what should define and characterize us as a congregation. Last Sunday, we looked at delighting in Jesus over everything. If you'll put that picture on the screen, we said that the answer to all the why questions of life is God's glory. Therefore, the most central and important thing is to see God glorified. And we argued that God is glorified most when we delight in Jesus over everything. That was last Sunday's sermon. But last Sunday, I also said that the biggest commitment to the church is not depth, or transformation for transformation's sake. Nor is it with the advance of Christ on its own, but it is height, it is to look up at the greatness of God in Christ. And that then fuels the others. It fuels display, and it fuels declare, and those even work against and with and along one another. So this morning, we now continue with the second building block of Emmanuel Baptist Church, displaying Jesus with one another. And to find that from the Bible, we're going to be in Colossians 3. Hopefully you're still open there, and we're going to look in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. If you have the notes I emailed out, these are on there. If not, that's okay. But a couple sort of catechesis questions to help us kind of land on the text so that we see what the big overview of the Bible is. Who are what are we to display? God made people in his image to be image bearers. Who are what are we to display? The answer is we're to display Jesus. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, why should we display Jesus? Jesus himself tells us our light should shine before men so that they will see our good works and do what? Glorify our Father who's in heaven. So there's an upward purpose to it. Now, how do we transform? And I thought about preaching this one because how we actually change is is often different than we think. But that was the verse we read together, 2 Corinthians 3. How do we transform? By beholding the glory of Christ, we transform from one degree of glory to the next. So we change by delighting in Jesus, actually. But what does it look like to look like Jesus? Well, the whole Bible gives us insight into that. But today we'll look at just Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And so our first point on the screen, and uh, if you're watching on video elsewhere, is number one, our inward transformation into Christ-likeness, displaying Jesus, follows our upward gaze to our risen Christ, delighting in Jesus. Look with me now in Colossians 3, verse 1. And notice it begins, if then, if you have the NIV, it begins since, and different translations are trying to get across the same point. And here's what the point is, don't be confused by it. Those who are followers of Christ by turning from themselves and trusting in Jesus, these things are true of you. So verses one through four are true of you if you are a follower of Christ. Let's see what is true of you, Christian, verse one. These are really, really wonderful. If you're a follower of Christ, you have been raised with Christ. You are new. You are born again. You now have resurrected life based on his resurrected life. Now notice verse three. What is true of you if you are a follower of Christ? You have died. 
When Christ died, you died. You have died to what you were. And now notice this wonderful promise. Your life is now and forever hidden with Christ in God. Which means that this guarantee will happen. The end of verse 4. You also will appear with him in glory. So these are things that are true because you've been united to Christ in faith. They are irrevocably, wonderfully true. Because these things are true, it should make a difference now. So now look in verse 1 again. Since these things are true, you should seek the things that are above where Christ is. You also, verse 2, should set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. Now, you've noticed that my wordage is delight in Jesus over everything, display Jesus with one another. But did Pastor Josh just make those words up out of thin air? (laughs) And I'd like to argue the answer is no. Richard Mellick, in his commentary on Philippians, writes this, the phrase, set your minds on things above, includes much more than our English concept of thinking. It includes values and loves as well. It could be translated delight in things above. And what is the thing above that we're to delight in according to verse 2? Where Christ is. See, delighting in Jesus over everything is what fuels and empowers displaying Jesus. In other words, this text is saying a wonderful truth. Become what you are. Become what you truly are in Christ in daily life. By grace-enabled, spirit-empowered, active effort. Have you ever heard the phrase, someone could be of such heavenly mindedness, they're of no earthly good. Maybe that phrase has something to it, because we all know someone who is intellectually, theoretically curious, but isn't able to apply it on a practical level. But notice this passage is telling us directly that it is our heavenly mindedness on Christ that makes us of earthly good. (laughs) Indeed, it is delighting in him that makes it possible for us to change. That means that of all the fuels you could put in your tank to change, the only one that will never run out is delighting in Jesus. Let's use marriage as a quick example. If in a marriage there are problems, and your only motivation to see it work out is that other person, that other person won't be enough fuel for you to go as far as the car could go. The fuel that goes farther than the worthiness of that other person is that Ephesians 5 says that marriage is to display the relationship of Christ for his church, meaning that there is a delight that runs much farther than what we see on earth. So this passage tells us that on the basis of who we are in Christ, there is a fuel for true transformation. That leads us now to number two. Christians display Jesus by putting to death sin in our lives. Notice the word therefore in verse five. Put to death therefore. What's the therefore therefore? Because of verses one through four. Because of who you are in Christ and how delightful he is in your heart. On that basis and by that fuel, put to death the things that are sinful within you. Now, we're putting to death the things that are sinful within us, not ultimately for our own sake, but so that we will display Christ. Look now in verse 9 and 10. And we will come back to verse 5 in a second. But look in verse 9 and 10 so you see what God is working towards. Okay, look in verse 9. Lie not to one another, 
See, you've put off the old man. You're not who you were before Christ. You're not in Adam anymore with his deeds. And have put on the new man. You are now a new humanity in Christ, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And who's the creator? According to Colossians, do you remember from last week? Colossians 1, verse 16. And by him, all things were created, and through him was everything made, and for him. See, Jesus Christ is the creator it's referring to. Therefore, God's purpose in changing us is to show his son through us. With that big purpose, now we're ready to go back to verse 5. Mortify, kill, put to death what is earthly in you. Now, all five of these things are sexual sins. We don't have our normal children's program. There are kids in here. I'll try to be very considerate of this, but these are all sexual sins that are, are mentioned. In, in a vacuum, in a dictionary, some of these words could mean other things, but here in a list, they're all sexual sins. They begin with the Greek word pornea, and Paul, on four occasions when he lists sins, he begins with this word, and he focuses on sexual sins. He does that here, and he does in 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, and 1 Thessalonians 4, so five places total. Why does he name sexual sins out loud, in public, in front of the gathering? Here's why. Because all of these sins in privacy and secret, thrive. But all of them, when they're mentioned public and brought under the light, wither. So Paul brings these out publicly so that we can put them to death together. So I do have to talk about sex and Christian ethics of sexuality and how the Bible informs us on it. First, let me acknowledge this culturally. Most of the time when I meet someone who's not a Christian and they find out I'm a Christian and we have banter back and forth, one of the things they assume is that Christianity is shockingly antiquated on matters of sex and ethics. It's repressive, it's outdated, it's not the way enlightened people think anymore. Because they think that God's standard of sexual fulfillment existing only between a married husband and wife to be repressive and outdated. But let me ask you to consider something for a moment. Consider this possibility, that the person who created male and female, and the person who created marriage, and the person who created sex maybe knows how it's supposed to be done better than we do. Wilt Chamberlain was a famous NBA player. He holds a record for most points in a single game. He scored 100 points in a single game. Wilt Chamberlain in 1991 authored a book called A View from Above. And in the book, Wilt Chamberlain claimed to have slept with 20,000 women in his lifetime. He perversely kept track. Wilt Chamberlain never married. And though he fathered children from various women, he never had anything to do with any of them. Now, eight years after he wrote that book, he died. But shortly before he died, he did an interview with ESPN. And I'll quote exactly what he said. With all of you men out there who think that having a thousand different ladies is pretty cool, I have learned in my life, I have found that having one woman would have been much more satisfying. Isn't it possible that the creator who made male and made female and made sex knows how it's better used than we do. Will Chamberlain never knew what it was like to wake up next to the same woman who loves you whether you're sick or healthy, whether you're aged or young, 
whether you're successful or maligned. He didn't know what God had actually made. Now, God tells us in Proverbs 5 what he actually made and how it's more wonderful. In that passage, he warns us away from adultery. And he says that adultery seems like honey and smooth, but in the end, it's bitter and double-edged and leads to the grave. But then in Proverbs 5, beginning in verse 15, the Bible uses a very interesting metaphor to help us understand how sex can be wonderful versus how sex can be destructive and horrible. In verse 15, he says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Can you get that picture in your head for a minute? A well. What is water like in a well? It's controlled. It's deep. It's refreshing. You return to it. You have a covenant with it. He compares that then with the opposite. What if you are loose and your water overflows in the streets, in the public squares? What is a flood like? It's all over the place. It's destructive. It harms people. You can't return to it. It's not refreshing. Do you see the difference of the metaphor? The well is controlled, covenantal, refreshing, and you return to it. The flood is chaotic. It destroys things. It's everywhere. It affects everyone, and it does not refresh in the long run. And so then the Bible says this, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May she satisfy you always. May you always be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, would you be intoxicated with another man's wife? You see, God wrote thousands of years before Wilt Chamberlain ever played basketball what he and we need to hear. There's a more refreshing, controlled beauty. So now verse 5. These are five sexual sins that the Bible will talk about that God wants to protect us from so that we can better enjoy his good design. And the first one translated in the ESV, sexual immorality, is the Greek word pornea. What does pornea mean? Obviously, you can hear that we got the word pornography from it, but what does the word pornea mean? In short, it means anything outside of one husband married to one wife in marriage. Any sexual activity that's not that is pornea. Now again, to us as Americans, we think, man, that's crazy. That's insane. That's got to be antiquated. Surely we've evolved past that now. But remember that everything God has created, he said, it was good. Therefore, what God made is wonderful, good, and right. And sin then takes a good design and perverts it. See, sexual intimacy actually is supposed to be a way a husband and wife grow closer to each other, 1 Corinthians 7 says. It may, doesn't always, but it may produce even new humans. What an incredible thing that is, that it could result in that in God's plan. But it also is made for great shared pleasure, as Proverbs 5 in the book of Song of Solomon talks about. Finally, though, it is covenantal. In our culture, sex is for self-expression, In God's plan, sex is for shared covenantal loyalty, shared pleasure. Now, societies constantly change their morals. If you've, depending on your age, you may have seen our country shift drastically on sexual ethics just over your lifetime. Spoiler alert, it'll keep happening. (laughs) With the internet, it'll probably happen faster. Many things that right now we think are wrong 20 years from now, people will think are right and vice versa. 
In fact, if you want to read just scientists over the years, read what Charles Darwin wrote about the Aryan race and its primacy over all the races, things that the scientific community thought were good and right, which are racist and evil. But notice how societies change morals frequently. We do have in front of us a timeless standard of truth, though. And in Scripture, we find that there actually is something wonderful that God has made that's to be enjoyed covenantally. Now, right now in our American zeitgeist, the only control that we have on sexuality is consent. That's it. If there's consent, then it must be good. Now, the Bible says, no, the control actually is covenant. It's covenant of a man and woman in marriage. That's where the well is deepest and the water is most refreshing. There's many developments that have changed the way we view this. Surely technology is one of them. Many societies over history, if you were promiscuous, you could have children, and those children may not have parents. And even societies that were secular didn't want that to happen. Today, though, we've invented many ways to avoid that possibility. And so people are less concerned. In fact, did you know that many countries across the world are now having a below birth replacement level? And because they're so concerned, they're not going to have citizens to carry forward their society. They're actually providing incentives for you to have pregnancies and to bring children into the world. That's how quickly societal mores change. But here in God's word, we learn that pornea as Tim Keller writes, referring to sex, anything other than sex with your spouse is actually not God's design. But let me explain why God's design is better for you. Perhaps you've learned even by experience that if you have intimacy with someone apart from covenant loyalty, then you're only sharing a part of yourself and you're leaving a huge part of yourself out of the relationship, which means that you're never close enough to really trust one another because you don't have full transparency, so you can't have full trust. If we treat people as just physical beings apart from souls, then we will take advantage of them, and at best, our intimacy will only be artificial, which I think may be why, in our current cultural moment, digital alternatives to intimacy have become so popular. They're popular not just because of the anonymity and the secrecy. They're popular because underneath that problem, we have started to treat other humans as objects for our consumption rather than people to whom we commit covenantally. So number one, under the five sexual sins to put off, is pornea. The second word in verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, not just pornea, sexual immorality, but now also secondly, impurity. You might ask, what does impurity mean and how is it different to sexual immorality? Here's what the honest answer is. That first net, anything that's not between a husband and a wife, in case in your mind you're like, what about this thing? That's why impurity is listed second. It's the second net to make sure that there is nothing left that you could possibly think of that would be God's design other than what God actually designed. Now, the next three words all deal with our desire. Uh, Passion, as the ESV puts, or lust, as the King James, I think, is a little more clear, which deals with what you want in your heart. The next word, evil desire, which is lust that's now become uncontrolled. It's ongoing. And then notice the the next phrase, covetousness. You know what it is to covet. It's the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. To covet means to want what isn't yours to want. 
Now, the first two words had to do with what you do. But now the last three words have to do with what you desire. They have to do with what you want on the heart level. Can I say something interesting? We already saw in verse 9 and 10, God wants us to display Jesus, but now he cares how we feel and think in our heart? Right now you might be thinking, but wait, if it's only what I thought in my heart and in my mind, then it's not that bad. It's not going to affect anybody else. It's not going to hurt anybody else. It's not going to actually impact anyone else. That is so wrong. Everything you want in here affects out there. Every time in hundreds of ways that are imperceptible. What you start to focus on and desire in your heart and in your mind impacts how you view other humans. Impacts what you will and won't do. It impacts the fear you have of how other people think of you and how comfortable you feel with other people. And it totally colors your perception of humanity, perhaps even making a market that does directly hurt other people. Now notice the last phrase in verse 5. All five of these sexual sins exist on the same plate. You see this, the plate, which is idolatry. If you want something that isn't yours to want, you have made a God of that, and you will worship it, and it will own you, and you will serve it. If you're married, or even if you're unmarried, and you want someone who isn't yours to want, Don't deceive yourself into thinking, well, I haven't done anything yet. No, already we've gone too far. If in your mind you're able to imagine another life with someone else, you really think that doesn't affect everything about you? We display Christ even on the heart level, and that always works its way out. But finally, recognize the callousing, desensitizing effect of sin. Alexander Pope lived in 1688. He was born and lived into the 1700s, and he wrote poetry, and he wrote a long poem called Essay on Man. And I read that poem years ago, and and there's a line in it that always stuck with with me. Here's, Here's what it is. Sin is a monster of such frightful mean, M-I-E-N, character or quality. Sin is a monster of such frightful mean. To be hated needs but to be seen but seen too oft, familiar with its face. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. And that is how sin works. First you think, that's gross. I wouldn't do that. Then you think, well, I could understand why someone needs that. I mean, they're hurting. This is a good thing. I mean, they they need to try that. And then you embrace it. It has a desensitizing effect, a callousing effect. In fact, be concerned if you start to pity what God calls evil. You're becoming blind. So now verse 5 again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion or lust, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. All idols are made with human hands, and all idols we think will someday satisfy us, and none of them ever do. Only the living and true God can. But not only are idols empty, look at verse 6, a sobering warning of smelling salts. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
Sin always has two levels of consequences. First, it has what we call natural consequences. Galatians 6, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So on one sense, what you do will come back on you. What goes around, comes around. But there's a second, much more serious thing. Sin has eternal consequences. So if, if I don't have the smelling salt that says stop, then I'm going to continue in what is eternally damning. But in God's grace, there's good news in verse 7, because verse 7 says that isn't what I have to be. In these, you too, Christian, once walked, once walked when you were living in them. Be encouraged, Christian, you are not what you were. The old self is dead. The new has come. And so you can transform to display the glory of God in Christ. So five sexual sins. But now the second plate are five social or relational sins. Look with me in verse eight. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Anger and wrath is when you feel intense animosity towards someone. Wrath is when that intense animosity won't subside. It continues and it, and it drives up. The next one, malice. Malice is when you say things to someone with the intent of hurting them. You're, you're using words to hurt somebody, to cut somebody in a, in a sinful way. The next word, slander. Slander means to say things about someone that don't need to be said. It's unjust to say them. You're defaming them without cause. The last phrase, obscene talk would be closer to our English concept of swear words or vulgarities or crude speech. Now, verse 9 says, do not lie to one another. And you might be thinking, Pastor Josh is terrible at math. He said five, and this is now number (laughs) number six. But I think just like the first five sexual sins had a plate on which they were given to us, and it's called idolatry. So these next five social sins have a plate that they're served to us, and that plate is on untrustworthy relationships. So how we speak breaks down relationships and makes our relationships false. Have you ever noticed in your life how deep and far a wedge words can cause between people? That's why all five of these, he says, are one another sins. You could say something in anger and that person may forgive you, but it may linger for a long time. You may say something in malice to hurt somebody and you may two minutes later say, I shouldn't have said that, but it, it still stings. You may be in slander, said something about someone that you really didn't have the right to say and they may never be able to escape what you said. Uh, in terms of obscene talk, um, I love the old joke. There was a, a, a pastor, he was nailing things in at the church and there was a young boy following him all day. And later they asked the boy, why were you following the pastor everywhere where he was nailing things in around the church? And the boy said, I wanted to see what the pastor was going to say when he hit his thumb with the hammer. <laughs> and it's a reminder that if you say something that's so out of character, it can stick with you, it can stick with you. So all of these reminders are about the way that we can affect one another. But now look at how verse nine continues. Don't do these things to one another because seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed. You're new, Christian, and you're being renewed after the knowledge of its image, its creator of Jesus. 
And in Jesus, we're a new humanity, not just a new individual. So look in verse 11. There's not Greek or Jew. There's not racial difference in Christ. We're not circumcised or uncircumcised. There's not religious tradition difference in Christ. There's not barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. There's not economic or class status difference in Christ. But Christ is all and in us all. Meaning Christ is everything. And he's in all of his body. We're a new humanity to display Jesus. Years ago at a church in Michigan I was serving at, we bought uh, outdoor parking lot lights to put in the parking lot. But in order to get them there, we first had to dig into the parking lot. So we broke the concrete and then we were digging hard and we were trying to get deep underneath so we could lay in the new parking lot lights. And in the hole that I was assigned to dig, (laughs) as I kept digging at the bottom, I hit a sewer pipe. And the sewer burst open (laughs) and I was down there deep in that hole. And I remember very vividly that that experience and wanting to just burn everything on me and then shower. And after eventually I was able to get rid of all of that stuff and shower, I felt so new. Look at the first two words of verse 12. After all this stuff is put off, then put on. So number three, Christians display Jesus by putting on Christ's character in our lives. Now, I know the last six or seven verses I had to go through are about what we should reject. But praise God, the Bible is not a book about what we don't do. It's a book about what we do and become. So there are things that we put off so that we can put on. And things that hopefully now smell really bad to us. (laughs) We now see them as vile as they were. And so now we want to put on what is truly lovely. But let me encourage you as a fellow sinner. This encourages me when I still sin. Look in verse 12. What I put on isn't what actually makes me right with God. Because verse 12 says I'm already God's chosen one, holy and beloved. Isn't it encouraging to know that the putting off and putting on is not what gains entrance to heaven? What gains entrance to heaven is the way, the truth, and the life who lived for me and died for me and has now opened heaven for me. I don't put off and on to earn a seat in eternity. I put off and on because Christ has earned it for me. And then he has chosen and made me holy and beloved. So now we get to put on five graces. The first one in verse 12. Put on God's holy, chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice the first one, compassionate hearts or the old King James, bowels of mercy. It means a deep awareness of somebody else's suffering. The next one, kindness, which is the quality of being warm-hearted, considerate, humane, gentle, sympathetic. The third one, humility, the disposition of assessing yourself accurately, knowing your creatureliness, knowing God, knowing yourself. The fourth one, meekness, which is a word that means more than even-tempered. It actually means to not be self-focused. The fifth one, patience, or better translated, long-suffering. It means what it sounds like, to suffer for a long time, even when others are mistreating you. It is to have patience with other people. Now, these wonderful virtues allow us to do verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Forbearing means a willingness to put up with even difficult people. Doug Moo writes, for the sake of our community, we sometimes have to put up with people whom we would not normally choose to associate with. To forgive others, notice the verse goes on to say, forgiving each other by what measuring stick? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. 
Now, just to give a caution here, forgiveness does not mean that there are never consequences or that we never call the police or that there's never church discipline or that we never invite in something that's very sinful going on from examination and proper consequences. But forgiveness does mean that we refuse to be short-tempered towards others even when they bother us. And frankly, we may find them annoying. I don't know that we've maybe ever needed a verse like verse 13 in our country as much as we need it now. Have you noticed during the pandemic, this is the illustration I've been giving people, uh, imagine you have a radio dial and it starts at 1 and it goes to 10. Some of you, and you probably know who you are, are just even-tempered, pretty calm people. And your dial on a normal day is about a two. Some of you are a little more hot-blooded, and you're like a little more uh, rough-edged. Maybe you're a five on a normal day. I feel like over the last year or so, everybody's added four points. (laughs) So if you're normally like a one, you're about a five. If you're normally about a five, you're about a nine. And things that before you would have maybe let slide, now you're ready to go to blows over your disagreements. And a lot of these disagreements actually aren't as significant as we might think they are. But the dial is way up and people are much more angry with one another. But this text tells us to bear with one another. And if we have a complaint with one another, to just forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us. So let me just give some specific encouragements in this season right now to help us keep the dial down where it belongs. First, let us all acknowledge that there is a lot more that we don't know than what we do know. In this season, a lot of people have read three or four blog articles and now they're ready to kill somebody over it. (laughs) I did some research. I read two articles. So you're an idiot, you know. Uh, No, let's dial it back. There's a lot less that we know than what we do know. And hopefully we've seen that as we're all trying to figure out things that nobody seems to be able to figure out. Second, have you noticed that the kind of personalities that make you most upset are normally reflections of your own personality? That person is so outspoken. So are you. (laughs) We tend to be upset with the things that reflect what we struggle with ourselves. So let's dial it down. Third, remember this. There are actually a few things that are worth dying over. There are Christians of other centuries. I have Christian friends right now who are in Iraq, who are in China, who know people personally who have died for following Christ alone as their Savior. There is a time that something is so significant you die over it. But brothers and sisters, there are not many things like that. Romans 14 makes clear that there's a lot of things that are meat offered to idol issues where we don't have to die or kill anybody else over them. And so verse 13, bear with one another, forgive one another. And the clothing that goes on top, the trench coat over everything else is verse 14. And above all those other virtues, put on love, which binds everything together, makes the whole outfit look right. In perfect harmony. When love covers everything else, then we finally have the greatest virtue. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, faith, past, hope, past, but the greatest of these is love. Love, then, is the way that we interact with, most importantly, one another. So look in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Do you see it now? These are not indiv- individual virtues. 
These are virtues for the church interacting with the church. Remember my opening sentence, display Jesus, not individually, display Jesus with one another. You see it now from the Bible? All these virtues are not about you, per se. They're about us. We put off sexual sin. We put off social sin. We put on the virtues. Love covers them so that we can dwell together in one body. Didn't you see all the one another's throughout the passage? You see, displaying Jesus is actually a community project. And it cannot be done individually. On your notes, I've given you five quick reasons why we cannot properly display Christ on our own. There's more that could be given, but let me just tell you five quick ones. Did you know that we cannot see the deceitfulness of sin without outside help? Hebrews 3 says, exhort one another so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I am not the best judge of myself. I always grade on a curve. (laughs) So I need others to see what I don't see in me. That's what the church does. Number two, we cannot call upon the Lord and change apart from others. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lust, pursue righteousness and faith, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. If I'm going to grow in purity, I need other people. Third, we will fall, all of us. And so we will need others to bear us up. Galatians 6, if anyone is caught in a transgression, and who isn't at some point, You who have the Spirit of God should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, bearing one another's burdens. I need the whole community if I'm going to display Christ. Number four, God didn't just make you a new you. He made you a new us. 1 Peter 2 says you are a holy priesthood, a chosen nation. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people, meaning once you didn't have a collective community identity, now you do. You're now the body of Christ. Fifth, on our own, we lack what only others in the community provide. Just like your body has eyes and ears and a nose and hands and feet, and they do different things, but they're all part of the same body. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says the church is like. If we lose one of them, we lose a very important piece that can't be replaced. They do something that I can't do. Do you know how many one another's there are in the New Testament? It's in my notes if you want to plumb this further. 100 one another's in the New Testament. One-third of them deal with unity. One-third of them deal with love. Almost 15% of them deal with humility. And the other 19 are like in today's passage today, singing with one another, bearing one another's burdens. All these one another's in the New Testament. Here's what that means. The church is not something you individually consume. It is a community you come to know and love. Now, all week I've been asking God to give me grace on what I'm about to say. So if you're not on the edge of your pew, this is your chance. (laughs) How should we think then about COVID and screens and all of that stuff when the church is a community? Now, God will bring us all into account for our motives. So honestly, my purpose today is not to tell anybody exact specificity about their own life in that. Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the summon of yourselves together, but so much the more as you think the day is approaching. So all of us have to follow that text, but how do we do it now when we have the option to stay home and watch it from a screen? Full disclosure, because we don't have nursery today, my wife and four kids are watching live at home right now. 
And I know that different Christians are wrestling through that. They have someone in their immediate family that could get sick very easily. I am not trying to comment about that. But here's the bigger point that I want to make. Right now, we're in a situation where people all over the country are watching church with cereal in their lap, (laughs) pajamas on their body, a laundry basket within three or four feet, a couple children they're chasing, doing a couple tasks in the background. And maybe that really is the only way they can do it, and the Lord will bring us all into account for that. But then what happens on Monday night, they put on their favorite detective show, and they have the same bowl of food in their lap, and the same attire on, and the same laundry basket nearby. And then Tuesday, they're laying in bed, and they're scrolling on their their phone, and they're working past their favorite comedian, and the new clothes they're going to buy. And notice for them, the experience seems about the same. And if you do that for 10 months and 11 months and 12 months and then a year and then two years, then eventually that habit is going to shape the way you think of what a church is. So hear my sentence very, very carefully. Church is not a video you download and consume or scroll with your thumb. Church is a community you know, love, and belong to. 1 Peter 2 says we are God's people. And 1 Corinthians 12 says each of you are a part of the body of Christ. American churches have failed you by teaching you over the last 30 years that church is a consumer product and you can drive in and find the favorite style for each member of the family. And now we see the full bloom of that. And if we're not careful, we're going to forget that church requires community where people know each other. And without that trust and transparency, we cannot display Christ as he intended for us. So let me give you some encouragements for the next year as it is an uncertain year. Whatever habits you currently have to do, Christ will examine those. But whatever habit you choose, be careful that it doesn't cause you to redefine what the church is. And love and embrace the gathering of God's people as soon as you are able. As soon as you are able. But let me give you a final word of encouragement here. Today's passage tells us directly what God wants his people to look like. But what do you do if you're here today and you have sinned sexually and you're sexually broken? Or you have sinned socially. Maybe in the last five days you spoke words of anger to someone else that were very, very harmful. What do you do? The first thing I want to tell you to do is to actually allow yourself to feel badly. I know in our culture we always say, don't shame me, don't shame me. But can you imagine, if no one ever felt badly about anything, we'd have a country of sociopaths and serial killers. We have to feel badly when we've done badly. But let that bad feeling drive you to the good news. Look again in verses 1 through 4. If you have been raised with Christ... Listen this morning, no matter how you've sinned sexually, no matter how you've sinned socially, these words about sexual sin and social sin are not meant to cut you so that you bleed out. They're the surgery of the great physician so that he can take out what is hurting you and restitch you up with a new heart. Christ is calling you to be made new and rejoice. Even Christian, verse 10 says, even Christians can be renewed. So Christian, today, if you're feeling like, I'm, I'm not worthy to stand before God, I've sinned in this area, I've grievously failed God, here is the best news for you. You are raised with Christ. You died with Christ, and all of the cost of your sin, he bore in his body and dealt with on the cross definitively. 
And you know what's even better? Your life is hid with Christ in God, and you will go to glory with him. Not because you and I are glorious, you and I are broken, but because Jesus never failed. Jesus, who could sit with prostitutes and sinners and love them, but then die for them. Jesus, who could be hurled words of anger against him and yet could say back, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is Jesus's perfection that is our hope and that is our promise. So this morning, be encouraged. There is someone who has died. There is someone who has risen. So lift up your head and put your heart on he who is above. And by that power, put off and put on and display him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jesus who is altogether holy and altogether lovely. Give us all the humility to know that we are not. We are sexually impure. We are socially broken. We use words of anger. We say things that are wrong and are inappropriate. But God, thank you for the perfect son of God who never thought a sinful thought, never desired a sinful desire, and yet reached out to the most socially scandalous people in his community and ate with them and challenged them and loved them and called them to himself. And today he's calling us now. Maybe somebody watching at home or somebody here in person hasn't yet found the freedom of knowing that all of their sin can be taken away by him who died for it and rose. Lord, help them today to come to Christ so that their life too can be hidden with God and that they know they're headed for glory. But those of us who are Christians who have sinned, remind us of the gospel. Help us not to look within and see our sin, but to look up and see our Savior and remember the great love by which he loved us and cleaned us. And then, Lord, help us to put off and put on so that we can display your glory even through imperfect vessels like us so that your name will be glorified. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.